We're going to be in Matthew chapter 23 tonight, verses 23 through 39. Our goal and plan is to finish this chapter. Matthew 23, verses 23 through 39. Let me read it to us, and then we'll break it down. In verse 23 of Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you like, are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now look closely at verses 23 and following. Look closely at what Jesus is saying here. He's pointing out once again that the law of God was to point to and get to the condition of our hearts. Look again at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. As we have seen in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus showed that, the fo that focusing on the outward actions did not let the deeper issue, or did not let the Holy Spirit speak to your deeper issue, which is your heart and your sinful condition. And so I want to kind of remind you of some things Jesus said prior in our study of Matthew. I know it's been a while. We've been in Matthew for a couple of years. Let me take you back real quick to Matthew chapter 5 and look at verses 27 through 28. You know, and we've talked about in great detail through this study, that the law's purpose was to uh, show us our sinfulness and show us our need of a Savior. But it's also in that there was a heart of the law we're going to get to tonight. We're going to talk about the heart of the law and what God was really trying to accomplish in the law. Again, when they got the law of God, they focused on the minutia of doing it to every little detail, and they even added stuff, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But at the same time, that wasn't the purpose of the law. If it was about the minutia of the detail of keeping every little thing, think about the fact that when Jesus and his disciples uh, were walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath, Jesus himself, when they were attacked by the Pharisees about this, and they were eating some of the grain, and Jesus points out, he goes, don't you know that David and his men ate some of the holy bread that one time? Here he is pointing out a time in which it appeared that they were breaking the law of God. 
But it really wasn't about the minutia of the letter of the law, but it was actually all along the heart of God was trying to get, use the law to get to the heart of the law, which is man's heart and man's condition. Look again at Matthew 25, verses 27 through 28. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, they're looking at the outward action, measuring the outward action. But Jesus says, you still missed the point of the law. When it said, you shall not commit adultery, it wasn't do your best to not do this action. It was to show them what? Their heart, their real lust and their problem with, with sin in that area. For Over the years as a pastor, I've had so many people over the years come to me and they'll take things of the law and they'll say, all right, I know the Bible says that to have sex outside of marriage is sin. But what if we do this? And what, I'm re- what I say to the people there is, is, you're focusing on what is the letter of the law, but what's really being revealed is your heart. What you just asked me was, how close to sin can I get without falling over the edge? Instead of, how close to Jesus can I get? You're interested in, how close to sin can I get? Your question actually shows your heart. And so folks, that was the purpose. You're going to see that come out tonight in an interesting way. But some of you might even get mad. I'm just going to tell you that when we go there. But you're going to see in our study tonight that God's been trying to have them, he uses the law to show them their heart condition. And he says to the Pharisees, you guys are so focused on tithing on your mint and your dill and your cumin. I mean, every little spice in your garden, whatever whatever it grows, you count every leaf and you tithe one-tenth of every leaf. But you've missed the weightier matters, which are what? Go back to Matthew 23 again. Look at verse 23. The way to your matters of the law are justice and mercy and faithfulness. What, we're, what God says I'm really trying to get to is your heart. L- let me give you another example. Go to Matthew 15. Look at verses 7 through 9. By the way, as you, you're going to hopefully see tonight, we still have a tendency to do that today. Matthew 15, look at verses 7 through 9. Jesus says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I don't have time tonight to get into all or even, a whole, even some of the many ways in which the church today has taught commandments of men and made it a part of what it means to be a Christian. And we judge each other on whether or not we're keeping them. I'm going to hint at one or two in a little bit. But again, listen to what Jesus said. You may honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And actually, your worship's in vain because you're teaching and you're obeying commandments as men. And that's what you're focusing on. Look at verses 10 through 20 here in Matthew 15. And he called the people to him and he said, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. 
But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still also with that understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. If you remember from our study of Matthew 15, the Pharisees had come up with a new way of making sure that you were clean and, and able to eat something. You had to go through this ceremonial washing of your hands where you let the water drain down the fingers and then you had to do it another way and all this stuff. And they would wash pots and stuff and they would focus on the outward. But God says, you think you're obeying the law by focusing on the outward that's not what I'm measuring. I used the law to show you your heart, and you totally missed it, and I'm looking at your heart. God's law, by the way, and the prophets had been showing the people this all along. Here I am telling you now, you're saying, well, this is New Testament teaching. No, it's not. The Old Testament taught all along that God's law and His sacrifices and all the things that He had laid out for the Jews and for the people to follow and to worship Him, God's Word all along in the Old Testament showed that it wasn't about the letter of the law, it was about the heart of the law. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Psalm chapter 40. Psalm chapter 40, look at verses 6 through 8. In Psalm chapter 40, verse 6, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law it was, is with what? It's within where? It's within my heart. It's in the Old Testament. You actually aren't really interested in sacrifices and burnt offerings as much as you're wanting my heart. It's been there all along. Let me show you another one. Jump over to Psalm 51. Look at verses 16 and 17. We're going to come back to this passage, so if you want to put a bookmark, it'll help you find it quicker later on. In Psalm 51, look at verses 16 and 17. David says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David, in the midst of his sin, realizing his sin with Bathsheba, said, if you're wanting me to just do some kind of a sacrifice or a ritual, I'd do it. But I know you better than that, and you really don't want that. You want my heart. So when Jesus says, comes on the scene and says, God's more interested in your heart, he wasn't teaching a new teaching. It's what the law had been teaching all along. Go with me to Micah chapter 6. As you're turning to Micah 6, I'm going to set the stage for you. Micah chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 6 through 8. God has set up a courtroom scene, and he has, been, he has declared the nation of Israel guilty. And this is their response now to what God has just said, that they're guilty and worthy of judgment. This is their panicked response. In Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 6, they say to God, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Well, maybe that's not enough. Maybe he wants a little bit more. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Maybe ten thousands of rivers of oil? Well, maybe that's not enough. Maybe God wants me to do something more. Okay, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Does he want me to kill my kid? Look at verse 8. 
He's told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Folks, all along, it's not been about how good you've done in keeping the outward letter of the law. It's about the heart. That's why a lot of times in our churches today, we think we know who's righteous and we think we know who isn't. And we make our judgments on outward appearances and what they wear or how they act or whether or not they got tattoos or piercings and these types of things. But God isn't looking at the outward stuff. He's looking at the heart. And yet, what have we done over the years in the church? Made all our judgments on the outward appearance. The sacrifices prescribed in the law were pointing to Christ and that we needed, a blood, needed blood to take away our sins and needed repeatedly, these repeated, necess- sorry, I'll try it again, and, and we needed these repeated again and again and that showed that they weren't doing what needed to be done. Let me say that to you again, just in case I get a little stumbled, maybe you didn't understand what I'm saying. The sacrifices that God ordained were pointing to Jesus, of course, and ultimately that there would be one sacrifice. And it was showing that there needed to be bloodshed to take away sins. But in the fact that they had to be repeatedly offered, it was God's way of showing them, this isn't cutting it. Because if it did, it wouldn't have to keep being done. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, look at verses 1 through 18. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. By the way, does that sound familiar? We read that tonight in Psalm chapter 40. But a body you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So not only did Psalm 40, that we looked at earlier, verses 6 through 8, point out to the fact that God cared about the heart, and he wasn't desirous of sin offerings as much as he was wanting the heart. What was Psalm 40, verses, or who was Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8 pointing to? Jesus, the one who was going to come and to do the will of the Father. When he said, above you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and in sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. He then added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. 
For after saying, this is the covenant I'll make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The law's purpose was to show people the heart of God and the heart of man and how they weren't the same. They were to show them their sinfulness and their need of a Savior. But the Pharisees focused just on the letter of the law. They would tithe on their mint and their dill and their cumin. By the way, when Jesus said you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, a lot of you might not really catch what he just said. See, because they had a practice because a gnat was one of those unclean animals and they're not allowed to eat the unclean animals. So to make sure they didn't accidentally swallow a bug when they were taking a drink, they would strain their drinks through a little filter, if you will, to catch a gnat that might be there. They'd strain out a gnat. And Jesus says, you guys are straining out a gnat and you're swallowing a camel. The, the Bible's clear that God cares more about the inward, not the outward. But the Jews didn't look at what God's law was pointing to and showing, as we saw last week. They, and as, as we saw last week, they added stuff as requirements as well. Like we just touched on tonight with the washing of the hands and all that stuff. But do you all know we've done the same thing? Not just like what I talked about last week with whether or not women can wear pants and all that kind of stuff. How many of you were brought up with the requirements of Lent? Yeah. Yeah, it was Lent, man. And you had to add, and you had these requirements, and you had to do this, and you know this, and you couldn't do this, and you couldn't do that for so many days and all this stuff. There's a wonderful book out there by A.W. Tozer called uh, The Pursuit of God. And in chapter 10, he deals with, in that chapter, what the world calls this sacred-secular dilemma and dichotomy. And the world tries to decide if something's sacred or something secular, and he shows in that chapter that everything is sacred. Everything's supposed to be done to the glory of God. Everything's to be done to the Lord. There is no secular and sacred dichotomy. And then he goes into detail and he talks about how we have made Christianity way harder than God ever intended. We've added special days like Good Friday. And buddy, you better be at Good Friday service or you're not a good Christian. And we've added all these special things that you have to do. And I love how A.W. Tozer put it in that chapter. He said, we didn't know when we were well off. Jesus came along and said, look, Come to me, you weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come, take my yoke. Learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. Folks, let me say something to you. Jesus says to you, stop trying to work for salvation. It can only be accomplished through grace as I give it to you by my gift as you receive it by faith. But also the Christian life is not now that you're saved. Here's what you have to do for God. In the same way, Colossians 2, 6, you hear me say it a lot, in which you receive Jesus, just walk in him. He's got a plan for each of our lives, and just rest in that and enjoy it. Avoid the temptation to start figuring out, what does God want me to do? What is he looking for from me? What does he expect of me? Oh, by the way, there's lots of preachers out there who will fill your list for you. You need to do this, you need to do that. Folks, the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to lead you, and he's going to guide you, and he's got a plan for you that's different from the person next to you. And you'll be a whole lot easier on the people around you if you stop judging what you think everybody else ought to be doing and you just do what it is that God's called you to do. The Pharisees also focused on how they were doing and following the rules and they judged others accordingly. Don't turn there now, but if you want to look at it later on in Luke 18, 
verses 9 through 14, Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee prays this type of a prayer. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I tithe, I do this, I, I, I. But Jesus says in that parable, the tax collector didn't even look up to heaven. He just kept his head down and he said, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man is the one who went home justified. Be careful. See, a lot of times we too still, I know I do, because I have the same flesh problem you do, when we still sin, and if anybody says they don't, they're a liar, the Bible says, truth's not in them. But when we do, we have a tendency to think, what does God want me to do to make it up? He's already shown you, old man, what he wants. He wants you just to walk humbly with him. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. If there's something specific he wants you to do, he'll show you as you go. Stop trying to live by a set of policies. Stop trying to live by your principles. Live by the leadership of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis, and you're going to find his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and being Christian is a lot of fun. And you know what? You might even walk around with a smile on your face, and people might start asking you to give reason for the hope that lies within you. But if you think serving Jesus is a hard task, if you think you've got a slave to please him, you're going to be a miserable, grumpy person. You might even be panicked about the election. Let me just say something to you. God's controlling who wins. Too many of us are out there going, well, we've got to get out and vote. If we don't get out and vote, our side might not win. You don't understand how big God is, do you? Did the person everybody thought was going to win last time win? Let me just say this to you. God may hold you accountable if he's told you to vote in a certain way and you don't listen to him. But you, in and of yourself, can't control which way this election goes. God's word said he was the one that puts people in power. He takes care of that. So you pray. You thank God for your privilege of living in a country where you have a vote, and hopefully it'll be counted. But even if it isn't, God's got that too. It's time we Christians really understood the freedom that we have in Christ. The relationship that he's paid for. Folks, I don't know if you read it there in Hebrews with me, but I'm clear in my conscience of sins because through one sacrifice, he has made me perfect. Through his blood, shed once for all, and by that will, I have been sanctified. Oh, do I still struggle in this flesh? Yeah, but thank God I don't lose my salvation. I don't lose my forgiveness. That forgiveness is mine. I miss out on some of the joy of my relationship with him when I walk in my sin instead of in the spirit, but my loving father who loves me and is grieved when I sin, but he only is grieved really for me that I'm missing out on some of the benefits and the blessings. He lovingly says, come on back. I want to bless you some more and you're missing out on it. He doesn't say, okay, you do three of these and four of those and then you can come back like some of us were taught. Just walk humbly with your God. When the prodigal son came to his senses and ran back, if you know the parable, the father didn't even let him finish his speech. By the way, that's the only time in the Bible you see God running. Go look at that story. The father in that story represents God. And when the father saw his son far off, he ran to him. He loves you, folks. He loves you. And I'm not just talking to those out there that don't know him. But those of us who know him, we need to be reminded of this truth. He loves you. He loves you. If when you were his enemy, he died for you, how much more? 
How much more now that you've been reconciled and you're his child? You don't have to earn his approval. Don't listen to the Pharisees that are out there preaching today. Now, I want to pull out one more thing from Matthew 23. And this is the thing that might get some of you mad. But Jim, you were doing so good. I liked what you were just saying. I know, but i got to teach you the whole of Scripture. Look at Matthew 23, verse 23 again. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, listen closely, without neglecting the others. Now I'm going to say something to you, and I want you to hear what I'm saying, because you're going to hear me say something that I'm not saying. Jesus did not tell them to stop tithing. Now that's going to get, wait a minute, Jim, the New Testament, no, 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 we don't have to tithe. We're not under the law, we're under grace. Take a deep breath, put your guns back in their holsters, and just listen for a second. I'm not trying to put you back under the law. I want to talk to you tonight about the heart of the law. Why God in the law talked about tithing. It had nothing to do with whether or not you were doing 10%. I've had so many people come to me over the years. Does God want me to tithe on my net or my gross? And I've always asked them, well, how much do you want him to bless you on? Do you want him to have him bless you on the net or the growth? Because he's going to respond to your heart of your giving. That's the issue, not the actual number. So as I talk to you about giving tonight, don't hear me say, Jim says that we have to tithe. Actually, if you want to hear what I'm saying, I'm going to actually probably hint at the fact that you should be giving more than a tenth. But we'll let the scripture teach us, not Jim. Jesus said, you guys have done the tithing, but you've neglected the weightier matters. You should have focused on the weightier matters without neglecting the former. By the way, for all those people who have been taught, Jesus never taught about tithing. He did, right there. But I want to take you back real quickly, and I want to show you the proper heart attitude behind the law of tithing. And I'm going to show you something that came in the scriptures before the law. Go to Genesis chapter um, 28. Go to Genesis chapter 28. We're going to look at verses 10 and following. This is where Jacob wrestles with God. Sorry, not wrestles with God, but actually the, the, saw the, the, the latter. If I get to Genesis, we'll find it there with you. Here we go. In Jake, Genesis chapter 28, look at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is, is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar. By the way, Rick, he took his pillar and made it a pillar, but that's another bad joke, too. All right, and, and he poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at, that, at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Wait a minute. Is he saying that because the law of Moses said he had to give a tenth? No, the law of Moses doesn't come for many, many more years. But it came from his heart. You see, God had said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. And then actually, you're going to have descendants. And I've made a promise to you. And he says, you know what? I so trust that you're going to do this, that I'm going to take whatever you give me and give a tenth right back to you, because I know you'll take care of me. And I want to just, that's my heart's desire to do it in worship. Folks, tithing is not about the number. Tithing is about the attitude of the heart. The law of God was to show the heart. And if you really are walking in the Spirit, you'll have a heart to give. And I actually think the Bible teaches more than a tenth. But we'll get there in just a second. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 5. Again, when we get into these arguments as Christians over whether or not the New Testament talks about tithing, whether or not Christians are under the law of tithing, it shows our heart. We're focusing on what again? The heart of the law or the letter of the law? The letter of the law. When God says, I'm more interested in the heart. So I'm not saying to you, you better give a tenth. That's the letter of the law. I want to know is, where's your heart? God knows, and he'll show you. When it comes to giving, do you give generously because you trust that God will take care of you? Or is your heart, i got to take care of myself, and i got to make sure I'm taken care of? Well, God expects me to provide for my family. You ever heard that kind of talk? I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I think the Bible says that we're to work. But whether or not we make money is determined by him. The scripture says that in Genesis chapter 8, verses 17 and following. Folks, let me just say this to you. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and following. Deuteronomy 8, 17 and following. Listen closely. If you really believe that God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, that he will take care of you, that he had promised that you'll lack no good thing. If you really believe that, your heart will be, I will give. The early church, right after they got saved, lost everything. Man, they were chased out of their synagogue. They were chased out of their homes. They were estranged from their family. But when they would gather together, if anybody had need, they just said, here. Some people even sold property and just gave it all to the church. Oh, but there was one couple that gave, they sold a piece of property, gave some of the money, but they said it was all of the money. What did God do? He showed them where their hearts really were, and they both died in that instance. But God was interested in the heart, not the number. God wasn't worried about how much they actually gave. Peter even said, look, wasn't this yours to do with however you want? And after you sold the land, wasn't it still yours to do? Why would you lie to God? Let me ask you a question. Ignore the tithing word. Where's your heart when it comes to giving? Matthew chapter 5, look at verses 17 through 19. 
Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So did Jesus come to get rid of the law? Is the law good, done now? No. It's holy and righteous and good, Paul says in Romans 7. Yeah, it made me fall into sin because it raised every covetous desire in me. And, and because of it, I sinned. But the law is still holy. The law is still good. That's why Christians, we're not under Sabbath regulations, but we are still to keep the Sabbath. But when we totally trust in God and his, through His salvation in Jesus Christ and we cease from working, Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 says we enter His rest. We enter into His Sabbath. And we sit judging on whether or not you ate out on a Sunday or whether or not the Sabbath is on Saturday or Sunday, depending on some churches fight over it. And we get into the letter of the law and you miss the whole point. The law was the point to Jesus. And as it says in the book of Hebrews, as God rested from his labors and rested, he didn't need to rest because he was tired. He was pointing to Jesus. The Sabbath regulations were pointing to Jesus. And listen closely. We who cease working to get into heaven and just trust in Jesus have entered into the Sabbath rest. I'm observing the Sabbath every single day. It's the heart of the law, not the letter of the law. Go to Romans chapter 7. Look at verse 6. In Romans chapter 7, look at verse 6. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And then he goes on and talks about, like I just talked about, is the law of sin. Listen closely. We still keep the law, but we do it via the spirit and in the heart of why the law was given. Not in the old way of the letter of the law and the written code. Thank God Jesus took care of that because we could never do that. Because even if the law was about the heart, guess what? Uh, you got a problem and I got a problem. You know what it is? It's your heart. Go to Jeremiah. Go to Jeremiah real quick and look at chapter 9. No, chap we'll go to chapter 17, verse 9. Sorry, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 17, look at verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? By the way, NIV says beyond cure. I love it. The, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Folks, even though the law wasn't about the letter of the law, it was about the heart. Yet none of us could even keep the law in our hearts. Let's go back to that tithing thing again. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Not because it was a law thing. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so should he complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Jump down to chapter 9, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God by their approval of this service. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. Listen closely, folks. Paul says, listen, let me tell you about the Macedonian churches. In a time of severe poverty and affliction, they overflowed with generous hearts. And they gave, not only of their own means, but also beyond, as they wanted to, of their own will. It wasn't forced. It wasn't under compulsion. I'm not saying to you, tithe. I am going to say to you this much, though. The law shows you your heart. And if I say to you, try to give a tenth, what do you react? Where's your heart? My wife and I can look you in the eye and tell you, for years we would just focus on the tithe. Until we started to get to the heart of the law. And we stopped giving the tithe. And we started giving more. Oh, we had been meeting the letter of the law for years. But there came a point in our giving where God said, it's not about the number, it's about your heart. And so for us, we felt like the way that he was challenging us to show that we trust him was to give more than our tithe. And we did. It really does. It's because you're trusting in him. It's a worship. But listen, I'm not going to get into numbers because some of you will think we're bragging. But let me just tell you, our accountant can prove this. The percentage of what we give now has gone way beyond the tithe, and God keeps blessing us. It's not about the number. It's about the heart. He who sows sparingly, because they don't really trust God, will reap sparingly. Those whose heart is, I so trust that God's going to take care of me, I'm just going to start with a tenth, and that's, that's the minimum. Because you know the Bible talks about tithes and offerings, did you notice in this passage, they gave first to the Lord and then to the offering? 
When we start fighting over whether or not the New Testament Christian is supposed to tithe, we are getting into the letter of the law, and you totally miss the heart of the law. I'll leave it at that. Let God lead you in how he desires you to show your trust and worship when it comes to the grace of giving. Go to Matthew 23, verses 25 to 28. You know, some of you are mad at me. I still love you. And I told you that because I love you. Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28. We're not going to spend long on this because it's pretty self-explanatory. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, like I said, we're not going to focus on this too much. We all know that it's possible to look good on the outside, but have a different thing going on on the inside. And if you're like me, we're, we're good at it sometimes. But since God looks at the heart, it's possible that God's not as impressed with people in the church that we're impressed with. How many of you over the years have seen a religious leader that everybody looked up to was on TV or radio fall into sin and everybody was shocked and devastated? How could he? Same way you could. Same way you could. It's very possible to look good on the outside, but on the inside have something else be going on. And God knows the heart. I don't want you now looking around the room saying, okay, who in here is phony? You can't see inside, but God knows, and he'll judge when it's time, when it's appropriate. And aren't you individually great, grateful that God's merciful and patient and forgiving? Give some of that to the people around you, too. Go to 1 Samuel 16. We've already shown you Jeremiah 17, how the heart's deceitful, but it's God who tests the heart. Go to 1 Samuel 16. Here is when uh, Samuel has been sent by God to go anoint the next king of Israel. And he says, I want you to anoint the one I show you. Of course, Samuel starts to try to pick him on his own. 1 Samuel 16, look at verses 6 and 7. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, when they came, the sons of, of, of uh, uh, Jesse came, when they came, he looked on, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Don't miss that. God says, I know this guy's heart and he's not the one I chose. Have you ever noticed that when the angel came to Joseph and Mary, he said, you're highly favored. I've chosen you. Why? Because of their heart. The eyes of the Lord, 2 Chronicles 16, 9 says, The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Folks, you want to start seeing God do some things in your life? Don't think, what does he want me to do? Do you want me to sacrifice this or give this? Or what does he want me to do? He wants your heart. He wants you to humble yourself and say, Lord, search me. 
Show me if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way that's everlasting. Oh, and I'm not just making lip service because you know my heart. I really am ready to do whatever you want me to do. And when he knows your heart and he knows it's for real, watch what God does in and through people like that. Folks, we need a heart change, not a behavior change. We come try to come up with strategies to fix our behavior, but the, beha- the behavior won't change until the heart does. I've often said we're trying to clean the cobwebs instead of kill the spider. For the sake of time, go ahead and turn, don't turn, but look later on at Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, we see that God makes a promise to the nation of Israel that he's going to, in the future, bring them back into their land and erase their sins, sprinkle them with clean water. He's going to put his spirit within them, and then he's going to give them a new heart. That's what we need. We need a heart transplant. The old one's beyond cure, remember? Desperately sick. We need a new heart. We need a clean heart. We need a heart that he's made clean. We can't fix it from the outside by trying to do better. It doesn't fix the problem. But Oh, by the way, you say, Jim, you said that that was a promise to Israel. It's going to happen in the last days. Oh, remember in the book of Galatians, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, let me show you something that hasn't been revealed. Uh, you Gentiles are now co-heirs and with Israel and you're partakers of all the promises in the gospel through Jesus. All the promises that Israel's going to get in the future are ours now. And what does he say to us in John chapter 14? He says, the Spirit's with you, but it's going to be in you. And he's going to wash us. He's sprinkled us clean. He's washed us clean. He's put his Spirit within us. And he's going to move us to follow his decrees. Go to Psalm 51. Go to Psalm 51. David has committed sin with Bathsheba. Listen to what he writes in Psalm 51. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 17. See how everything we've been looking at is here all along. David cries out like that tax collector in Jesus' parable, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't talking about the act. It was just simply that he was born a sinner. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Jump down to verse 19. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be sacrificed on your altar. Did you catch that? He says, you're not delighting in sacrifices or else I do it. 
But once you get my heart where it belongs, I'm going to give sacrifices, but they're going to be right sacrifices. I'm going to do what the law says, but it'll be from my heart now instead of the letter of the law. Let him show you your heart and then have your actions come out of that change in your heart. In Matthew 23, in our last verses for tonight, we got 10 minutes. I think we're going to be able to do it because we're going to set the stage tonight in these last verses for what we're going to study next week when we get to chapter 24. Cannot wait to get to chapter 24. There's been so much incorrect teaching in chapter 24 over the years. I can't wait to break it down for you. But Jesus now, I'm not going to read it to you. Uh, We've already read it for the sake of time. Jesus, knowing their hearts that they desired to kill him, points out that they were no different from their fathers, even though they would honor the tombs of the prophets that their fathers put to death and said that they were different. If you remember when we read it earlier there, he said, you know, your fathers were the ones who killed the prophets and you honor their tombs of the prophets. But it was your own dads who killed them. And you say, if we had been alive at that time, we would have never done it. And Jesus says, let me point out a couple of things to you first. You've just testified that they're your fathers and you're their descendants. And the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. When he says, fill up the measure of your fathers, he says, carry it on. Go with me to John chapter 11. Let me show you what I mean. These same people who are saying to him, we would never kill the prophets like like our fathers did. He pretty much says, oh yeah? Do you know why he says, oh yeah? Because he knows their heart. Listen to John chapter 11, verses 45 through 53. John chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did. This is after he raised Lazarus from the dead. Believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're not worried about the nation as much as their position. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. By the way, that conversation happens prior to what we see here in Matthew 23. So the guys who had already been planning to put him to death say, if we were around, we wouldn't have killed the prophets like our fathers did. He said, you just admitted that they were your fathers and you're their descendants. You're going to act just like them and keep it up. And look again at verse 23, sorry, chapter 23, verse 34. Tell me that this verse here doesn't read like the New Testament, for those of you that have read the New Testament, and, and especially the book of Acts. Look at, book, look at Matthew 23, verse 34. He said, therefore, I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some you're going to kill and crucify, and some you'll flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. By the way, if you read the book of Acts, that's exactly what happened. They put to death John the Baptist, they put to death uh, Jesus, they put to death the scribes, and then when the disciples started spreading, they went everywhere to preach the message, and the Pharisees sent bad guys town to town to town to chase them from there to the next. They were putting them all to death. He knew. Well, they talked a good game, and they had everybody in the religious community thinking they were religious people, and Jesus says, actually, you guys, you're headed to hell, and you're dragging people with you. 
But also notice how Jesus knows every person who was put to death for their righteousness. Don't miss that. After verse 34, look at verse 35. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Don't miss that. That jumped off the page at me. Jesus listed the very first righteous person killed for their righteousness in the Bible, and he then listed the last one in the Old Testament who had been killed for their righteousness. Go to Zechariah chapter 1. Real quick, let me just show you what I mean. The book of Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. You're not going to see the story of how he was killed, but if Jesus said he was killed in this manner, I believe it. But in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of who? Berechiah, the son of Iddo. All right, so the prophet Zechariah, we know from Jesus' words, was put to death between the altar and the temple there. But guess what? He also listed Abel. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 4, how Abel was killed by his brother Cain. But go to 1 John chapter 3 real quick. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, look at what the scripture says here. John says, 1 John 3, verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Jesus said, on you, because you're just going to keep doing what your fathers have done. You're going to keep doing what all the wicked have done throughout generations. Unless you allow me to do a work in your heart and give you a new heart, you're headed for hell just like everybody else that doesn't receive this transplant through faith in me. And on you is going to come the blood of all the righteous people from Abel to Zechariah. Don't miss it. Jesus knows Every single one who was killed for their faith and what they went through, he is paying attention. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Sometimes we fall prey to when the enemy whispers in our ear and says, nobody appreciates all that I do. Nobody pays attention to what you're doing. Oh, that's not what the scripture teaches. Let God be true and every man, especially Satan, a liar. Listen to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. For God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do, and would desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, faith, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Folks, God's paying attention. Go to Psalm 56. Write this one down. Highlight it. Psalm 56, verse 8. This will be a verse that will help you in a time of struggle, in a time of tears. Psalm 56. Look at verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings, and you put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Folks, don't miss that. Oh, he knows the number of hairs on your head. He cares for you more than the birds of the air. Not a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground. He doesn't know about it. You're more value than that. When you're suffering and when you're hurting and when you're struggling and when you're tired and when you're weary, 
He knows. And he's kept track of every single tear. Then why doesn't he do something about it? Oh, you, he really meant is why doesn't he do it the way I want him to do it? He said he's going to do something about it. And the Bible says it's called eternity. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I consider that our present suffering is not worth being compared to the glory to be revealed. And let me just tell you something. Paul got to see that side. He's not allowed to talk about what he saw. But he says, I can tell you this much. You'll forget everything you went through on this earth when you see what's coming. Hang on. Hang on. Now in the verses that we have here, and we only have three minutes left in verses uh, following, he talks about how the judgment's coming on this generation. Uh, Jesus, in the closing verses of our study tonight, points out, that the coming points out the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which, is, which occurred in AD 70. We're going to deal with that next week. But Jesus had already been praised. If you went back to Matthew 21, we'll see. We've already studied the triumphal entry when they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. After this, in this week prior, sorry, between the triumphal entry and his being crucified, he's now saying to them, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Don't miss that. They had already had the triumphal entry. So when Jesus says, you won't see me again, Jerusalem, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He says, you won't see me again. After you kill me, you won't see me again until I come back. We're going to close tonight with Psalm 118. Last passage of scripture, I promise. Psalm 118, until next week. Psalm 118, look at verses 19 through 29. The prophecy of Jesus' triumphal entry was only partial, that was only a partial fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 118. Because listen to what it says in verses 19 and following. We don't have time for the whole chapter. You can go back and look at the whole chapter later on. Psalm 118, verses 19 and following. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord and the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. By the way, that's Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's the temple. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Next week, we're going to begin breaking down chapter 24 where Jesus describes the future destruction that's coming in A.D. 70, but then he goes into the tribulation period and lays it all out of what it's going to be on the earth right up till when he comes back and sets up his kingdom. And Jesus is coming back again. Are you ready? I didn't ask you if you were being good. I asked you, is your heart where it's supposed to be? And hopefully you can say, because of Jesus, yes. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.